Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio as we continue our Jack Webb Centennial Series. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, now we turn to Jack Webb's first big uh, radio project uh, that he did back in 1946 called One Out of Seven. One Out of Seven is certainly a unique radio program uh, for good or for ill or for both, maybe. The idea of One Out of Seven was that a news story uh, or a series of stories with a similar theme in most cases would be taken each week and dramatized using uh, transcripts and actual quotes of what had happened. Webb's interest in jazz as a fan and as a presenter over radio of uh, jazz music programs had led him into a lot of interactions with uh, black Americans. And he had a serious concern with the issues that affected them, uh, but also issues that affected other uh, minorities in the country. And these two episodes reflect those concerns as he deals with events that center around racial intolerance, bigotry, etc. So I will warn you that this episode will have some uh, unpleasant uh, moments with some bigoted uh, statements being quoted. Even though the show's purpose is to challenge those attitudes subtly, when I put quotation marks around subtly, I'll still advise listener discretion is advised. All right, we're going to go ahead and listen to two episodes of One Out of Seven. Uh, the original air dates are February 6th and February 27th of 1946. So let's go ahead and we'll take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, the material and direct quotations included in the following program have been taken from authoritative files and from dispatches filed by the Associated Press and International News Service. We present these statements without editorial comment. We assume no responsibility for their content. The American Broadcasting Company presents One Out of Seven. Twenty-four hours make a day, seven days make one week. And from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is one out of seven. Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. As a member of the United States Senate, he is looked upon as such by the eyes of the law. Perhaps he is looked upon as such by many or most of his constituents. Though his voice occasionally grate upon the nerves and his views often confound the innocent, 
the fact remains, as a member of the Senate of the United States, Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. And we do not intend to prove otherwise. We merely wish to cite a few samples of his handiwork. And perhaps a supplementary side glance or two, just for the sake of contrast. Adjust your dials most carefully, citizens. Herewith presenting Senator Theodore Bilbo, picture number one. Scene, the chamber of the Mississippi State Legislature, time, March 23rd, 1944. The speaker... recognizes us distinguished guests, the Honorable Theodore Bilbo, United States Senator from the state of Mississippi. Gentlemen, at this moment, I cannot urge you too strongly to continue the valiant fight to uphold our racial integrity. We must renew our faith and allegiance to the color line. For your information, I have found that certain Negro organizations are determined to secure passage of anti-poll tax measures. It's their first wedge toward the fulfillment of a dastardly equality program which Negro leaders have launched throughout the South and throughout the nation. That equality they must not and will not attain. After his stirring appeal to the legislature, Senator Bilbo informs a small group of friends in confidential tones. <clears throat> you know, gentlemen, I, I found out that a prominent uh, national official asked uh, southern colleges and universities to open their doors to Negroes. You know what I told them? Well, I'll tell you what I told them. I told them, I said, Negroes are never getting into our universities. You Negro-loving Yankees can go straight... As a member of the Senate of the United States, Theodore Bilbo is an honorable man. We do not intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number two. Hello. Senator Bilbo speaking. Senator, this is Representative Mark Antonio of New York speaking. Yes, yes, what do you want? Senator, I just got a letter from a lady who lives in my district. Uh, it seems that she wrote you that letter about your filibustering against the FEPC. Well, she says she stated her case fairly. And uh, she also says that as a reply, you wrote her one of the dirtiest letters possible. <laughs> well, yes, I, I think I did. Well, Senator, she also says you addressed her with a greeting, My dear Dago. Is that correct? Of course that's correct. That's what I called her. She's a wop, ain't she? That lady's Italian, Senator. And that's what you mean. I just thought you'd like to know that the lady has three brothers in the army in Europe. One of them has been killed in action already. You know, if you had a shred of decency in you, you'd apologize for that letter. I'll never apologize why she's getting off light. Now, listen, she really would have been scorched if I was mad. 
Commodore Bilbo is an honorable man. We do not intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number three. Scene. The Chamber of the United States Senate. Time, the 30th of June, 1945. Senator Bilbo is filibustering against passage of the Fair Employment Practices Commission. And during his prolonged dissertation to the gentlemen of the Senate, the following occurs. The senator from Mississippi may continue. Thank you. Gentlemen, I have been hearing much talk about the supposed bravery of our Negro soldiers. I have it on good authority and from some of the highest-ranking generals in our army that our Negro troops overseas are an utter and abysmal failure. They're just no good. And as for giving them a vote, why, they'd only sell their votes to the highest bidder anyway. So why give it to them in the first place? At the same moment, deep in the jungle of an embattled Pacific island, a Negro soldier pens a note back home to his family. And maybe this works pretty hard, Margaret, but it's a job that you just have to do. It's been three days now, and no sleep. Their bombers are still paying us visits. And it still doesn't look like the war is going to be over soon. But we have to keep on. Just keep on. I know. I just know everything's going to turn out all right. And when we finally get back, the folks will realize what we've done. And I'll bet they look at us differently. You know... For the first time, they'll see that bullets can kill anybody. They'll see, black or white, when blood runs out on the ground. It's all the same color. That's what the Negro G.I. thought. But back in the chamber of the United States Senate, Theodore Bilbo thought differently. I have it on good authority and from some of the highest-ranking generals in our army that our Negro troops overseas are an utter and abysmal failure. When Senator Bilbo made that statement, he was standing under the roof of the United States Senate. It is very safe in the United States Senate. A bomb hasn't fallen there for quite some time. must understand, please, this is merely a portrait, an interesting portrait, of a duly elected representative of the American people. For you see, Theodore Bilbo is an honorable man, and we do not wish or intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number four. Though the senator has firm convictions on certain subjects, there is seen a mounting tide of sentiment equally firm, equally convinced that the senator errs on the 10th of August, 1940. Senator Bilbo. 
It is the opinion of the Committee of Catholics for Human Rights that your conduct toward racial minorities is a chilling deterrent to worldwide belief that America is the symbol of democratic freedom and human rights. In a recent statement to the press, you attacked the Jewish people of the United States on the grounds that their race had damned and crucified Christ. You used this highly metaphysical argument to damn, vilify, besmirch, and otherwise persecute the Jewish people in America to further your own political ends. By lucid contrast, a few days after his attack on the Jews, Senator Bilbo is stricken suddenly with a strange ailment. He is put aboard a train and speeds northward for treatment. And is it not strange that the senator demands to be taken to the Mayo Clinic? Is it not strange when you consider that the Mayo Clinic was founded and operated by the Mayo Brothers, two members of the Jewish race professing the Jewish faith? But obviously, the senator is not loath to take advantage of the skill of the Jewish race. In the end, the senator's critical operation is a success. And in a few weeks, he returns to the floor of the Senate with another plan for the American Negroes. Gentlemen, for the best interests of the nation and all concerned, I believe a colony for American Negroes should be established on the west coast of Africa, bordering the state of Monrovia. Because of the exigencies of the times, any Negro who is race conscious and smart should be ready and more than willing to settle down in such a colony in West Africa. The very same day in the halls of the Senate, hallowed by the figures of men the likes of Lincoln and Jefferson... Theodore Bilbo, as a representative of the American people, had this to say. I cannot vote for the appointment of Mrs. Franklin Roosevelt as delegate to the United Nations Organization for the United States. No. She is a woman who has professed friendship for the Negro elements in America. She has no place representing us abroad. Mr. President! Mr. President! The chair recognizes the senator... From Idaho. Mr. President, I should like to congratulate the senator from Mississippi. He doesn't know it, but he just paid a splendid compliment to Mrs. Roosevelt by voting against her. <laughs> Mr. President, gentlemen, please, please, I'd like to add one more note. A word of warning to our senator from the South. It isn't going to be long now, Senator before the people of Mississippi see the light and knock you out of office on that part of your anatomy where your few brains are undoubtedly located. You must understand, please, this was merely a portrait, an interesting portrait of a representative of the American people. For, after all, Senator Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. He is looked upon as such by the eyes of the law. He is an honorable man. 
We did not intend to prove otherwise. The script for One Out of Seven is written by James Edward Moser. Gil Dowd is the producer and music by Otto Clare at the Hammond Organ. The material used in tonight's program was taken from authoritative files and from dispatches by Associated Press and International News Service. Listen next week, same time, same station, for one out of seven. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Ladies and gentlemen, the material and quotations used on the following program are taken from authentic news reports off the wires of Associated Press and International News Service. We present this material without editorial comment, since this station takes no official stand on any controversial question. We can, therefore, assume no responsibility for the attitude such statements reflect. From San Francisco, the American Broadcasting Company presents... One Out of Seven... Twenty-four hours make a day, seven days make one week. And from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is One Out of Seven. We're not here to tell you what is good or what is evil or to tell you what is right and what is not right. Being only men as you are, and thus being as moral or as immoral as you are, we refuse to mount the seat of judgment to pass sentence on those as guilty or as innocent as we claim ourselves to be. Now, we ask only that you pause, observe, and reflect. You have an intelligence of your own. Judge these actions for yourself. Last week, beneath the spacious skies of America the Beautiful, in the valleys of the amber grain and the fruited plain, and in the city towers looming high with the majesty of purple mountains, the people rejoiced and rededicated themselves in a nationwide Brotherhood Week. Lofty and ideal were the speeches of Brotherhood Week. Stirring and altruistic were the pledges and promises of Brotherhood Week. Godly and charitable were the aims of Brotherhood Week. But there are two families in San Francisco who are asking questions. Two families. City desk, Martin. Uh, say, boss, here's a pretty fair yarn on an eviction case. You want it? Yeah, sure. What's it all about? Oh, it seems there's a gentleman out in one of the residential districts who objects to the presence of a Filipino family in the neighborhood. There's also a Chinese family living nearby that, uh, well, it doesn't appeal to him either. Yeah, go on. Well, this gentleman says that the fact that these two families are living near him detracts from the value of his property. Well, what's the matter? Does he have something against them? Oh, no, nothing like that, boss. Uh, he just says that when he moved there, he was told that it was a neighborhood for white people. White people only. Uh, one of those restricted deals, you know? Well, now he's filing suit to have them evicted. Says he's losing money if they stay. What about the two families? What have they got to say? Well, they'll probably burned up about it. They're organizing, yeah, to fight the neighbor boosters club who's behind this gentleman. 
One of the members of the Filipino family is a... Well, he's a Navy veteran, and he gave me a pretty good quote. Well, go ahead. Let's have it. Okay, boss. Uh, he says, Is this what we've been fighting for? To have a bunch of stay-at-homes throw us out of our house? No, we're not here to tell you what is right and what is wrong. We wish merely to report that last week, the nation observed Brotherhood Week. In the churches and town halls throughout the country, the people rededicated themselves to the principles of tolerance and charity of the Founding Fathers. Columbia, Tennessee. A little more than 24 hours ago, the worst racial disorder in years brought about by rumors of threatened lynching of Negroes sweeps the city. 500 highway patrolmen raid a two-block area in the Negro section of the town where the non-white are carefully segregated. Armed with pistols and machine guns, the huge force of police search every Negro building in the area. Under the command of the state director of public safety, the patrolmen fire withering blasts through the windows of the homes of the buildings. Groups of the Negroes huddle behind barricaded doors, answer the machine gun fire with two or three scattered shots. More than 40 Negroes are arrested during the raid. The state director of public safety describes the police exploit as a success. The origin of the bloody race riot is not clear, but it is reported that it started when a Negro woman and her son had a fight with a Navy veteran. The Negro couple were arrested, and it was then, according to one Negro, that the lynching rumor fired the town. Uh, isn't that right? Well, we heard that the white men were going to have a lynching party tonight, and, well, we didn't like that. We didn't want any killing to start again. again renew our faith in Christian charity, in the principles of brotherhood that Christ himself handed down to us, and let us again resolve to act and live by the precept that we are all brothers, regardless of the color of our skin or the creed we profess, that we are all brothers in the house of the Lord. here to pass judgment on what is good and what is evil. We wish merely to report that last week in a nationwide celebration marked by pledge and promise, the people observed the annual custom of Brotherhood Week. In a large eastern city, time, Thursday of last week, a Jewish newspaper editor and his family stand outside their burning home, huddled in firemen's capes against the cold of the early winter morning. I'm from headquarters, Mr. Byrne. I heard about how the fire started in your house. Do you expect anybody or suspect anybody in particular? Well, no. I could not tell you the name of the man. I, I don't think I know him. But lately I've been receiving phone calls and... A few letters, too, warning me about the editorials I've been writing in my district newspaper. Well, what were those phone calls and letters all about, Mr. Byrne? Well, they, they said I was trying to make our district into a ghetto. 
And a Negro colony because I've been opposing a drive by the neighborhood club to keep out all the Jews. Negroes, Italians, Chinese. Uh, I think you know, officer. You must have heard. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard, Mr. Byrne. I guess this is their answer, huh? Yes. Yes. Tonight there was another telephone call, and then about one o'clock, my, my wife and I were... All right, George, light the torches and let them fly. We'll teach that jewel after they won't forget. Come on, let's get out of here. You see, it is not our place to pass sentence on the incident. For we're only men as moral or as immoral as you are, or as they are. We wish only to point out that last week was Brotherhood Week. Several appropriate speeches were made, and the people as a whole pledged themselves to tolerance and charity. The annual observance was acclaimed a success throughout the nation. Priests and ministers. This is a story which probably will not receive the circulation it deserves. It concerns an incident which occurred last week at a southeastern Navy station here in the United States. And if my guess is right, it should give many a citizen cause to stop and ponder the worth and aims of our lately won victory. It all happened in one of the mess rooms at this particular Navy base where a group of officers... Now, now, look, I don't care what anybody says. It's all the fault of the Jews. Now, look, I was in the Pacific, yeah. And all the time we're sweating it out over there, the big Jews back in the States are demanding that we defeat Germany first while the men in the Pacific starve and sweat it out. Now, oh, no, no, you can't tell me a thing about those Jews, brother. I know exactly what they're like. You can have them. I, uh, I beg your pardon, Commander. I'm a Jew, and I think you're very mistaken in what you say. Well, I'll... Now, listen here, Mr. Goldstein. You're a lieutenant. The Constitution may say that I have to serve in the same Navy with Jews, but there are no Navy regulations that say I have to eat at the same table with them. Now, you other gentlemen will excuse me. Last week was Brotherhood Week. Last week was Brotherhood Week. Through the wet, glistening street he came, his head bared, his frayed coat collar pulled tightly around his neck, a wide, ugly cut on his forehead, still bleeding, a monstrous bruise covering the side of his face. But strangely, I noticed he walked straight up, his head high. He came up and he stood beside me at the bus stop. And after a while, he said, You, uh, you are wondering about me. Is that not so? This, uh, cut on my head and this bruise on my face? Why, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I, I was wondering about... Yeah, well... Well, it looks like a pretty nasty cut, mister. Tell me, how'd you get it? Well, it all happened so suddenly, I... I still cannot remember everything. I try... Tonight, like every Wednesday night, we have our meeting down in the hall on the west side of the city, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, I know where that hall is. Well, on Wednesdays, the people who are of my race, well, we all meet together to learn about our new country, to study the language, and to try to be better Americans. Uh-huh. But tonight, we have some visitors. They are a group of men, and they say, we cannot stay here because this town is for people of their race only. We say, we will not go. And then there is a big fight. The men wreck our club room, they smash our furniture, and they fight with us. They tell us in loud voices, get out, stay out. But we fight back because we know the laws. The laws say these men are wrong. Oh, but the laws, they are not everything, are they? Well, uh, no. No, they're not, mister. You'll find that out. Yes, yes, we have found it out already. There are many things different about America than first, I thought. Ah, well, now, I must cross the street to the church. Would you like to come with me? I do not pray, you know. But I like to stand there in the church and say these things. It makes me feel better inside here after what has happened tonight. Well, I crossed the street with him and I went into the church... We sat down in one of the pews far back in one of the dark corners of the church. A few candles flickered uncertainly up at the altar. And after a long moment, he turned to me and he said, I, I do not hate these men who do such things. I am not bitter against them. Only I have so much pity for them. For is it not true? They are like frightened little children. Afraid, running around, looking for an enemy to fight. Anybody. But they do not see. The real enemy, he is inside them. Oh, they hate us. Yes, they hate us. But really, they do not know why. They would kill us. And then they would look down at our bodies and they would feel like little children who had just broken their toys. They, they see only the difference of color or language. And they become angry because we are not as they. Oh, it is so sad. And that is why I have so much pity for them. So blind. They are so blind. The sun is there waiting for them. Shining warm and full over everybody. But their eyes are still closed. And all they can see is the darkness. The script for One Out of Seven is written by James Edward Moser. Gil Dowd is the producer and music is by Otto Clare at the Hammond Organ. All characters in tonight's performance were portrayed by Jack Webb. Listen next week, same time, same station, for one out of seven. Mark Jordan speaking. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. One out of seven is a series that I have really struggled with how to present. Um, on one hand, I was tempted just not to play it at all, because it deals with uh, stuff that really is a lot more heavier than I typically deal with um, 
on my old time radio podcast, uh, with the exception of the, uh, you know, Superman episodes, which dealt with uh, a lot of bigotry that we uh, played, uh, you know, quite a few years back. But I do think this is actually a really uh, interesting series. It's definitely a series which has a lot of appropriate, righteous uh, indignation about uh, the way that people were being mistreated uh, due to their race, ethnicity, or religion. And while it is a, a bit heavy-handed, I think the writing is fairly good. James Moser was certainly a talented writer, and he would be the uh, author of some of the best Dragnet episodes of the 1950s, and you do see that sort of talent at work here. I thought the end of the second episode was particularly well done. The production also involved Gil Dowd, who would uh, be known for his work on the adventures of Sam Spade and later yours truly, Johnny Dollar, under uh, Charles Russell and Edmund O'Brien. For historic purposes, I'm glad that these episodes survive. They memorialize and record events that most of us didn't learn about in history class. It also captures a sentiments that would contribute to the great change that society would go through in the next uh, 20 years after this broadcast. And we heard it a couple of times expressed this idea of, uh, you know, we won this World War II. What exactly was it we won? And that has to be kept in the context of uh, what uh, we fought in World War II and what we were told it was all about. We were told that we were fighting against a great evil. Uh, we were fighting against uh, religious and racial intolerance, bigotry, and genocide. So after all the lives lost, the servicemen who gave so much, and all the people on the home front who sacrificed in order to make that victory happen, uh, it really infuriated a lot of people, uh, and it fed this desire that things have got to change to realize that human rights were not being uh, respected, that there were minorities being mistreated, uh, in our own country. And those sort of feelings uh, are what changed the public's uh, perception on a lot of these uh, issues in the years that followed. I admit that when I listened to the Theodore Bilbo episode, I was a little dubious about that senator from Idaho making that statement. Not because I thought it was just incredibly implausible that somebody from Idaho would have uh, a feeling that uh, Bilbo was wrong, but rather, it's the type of speech that a senator doesn't typically make. However, um, as I read up on it, it does seem like it was at least plausible that this was something that was actually said. There was a freshman senator from Idaho named Glenn Taylor 
who was in the U.S. Senate at the time that uh, Mrs. Roosevelt was nominated to the United Nations. And Taylor uh, was a big-time opponent of Bilbo. In fact, Bilbo would be re-elected in 1946. However, there would be a cloud of suspicion as to his activities and whether voter intimidation was involved. Senator Taylor actually requested uh, that uh, Bilbo's uh, re-election not be recognized, he not be seated by the Senate because of these uh, sort of irregularities. The matter essentially ended up placed on hold when uh, Bilbo went back to uh, Mississippi to get treated for oral cancer and ended up dying uh, and then was replaced uh, in the U.S. Senate. So I could believe, uh, from what I've read of Senator Taylor, that he made that statement. Uh, certainly some people in the party uh, uh, or in Senate leadership may have said, that's not really the type of thing you say on the floor of the Senate. But I, I could uh, believe that he said it. I can also see, though, why this series didn't make it. Webb was definitely improving as an actor. But his ability as to play all the roles uh, is kind of dodgy. There were a couple actors at the time who could have pulled off a show like this. Uh, Frank Graham and Paul Freese, I think both could have done this. Uh, with Webb, some of them are are not as good as others. That said, I when I read Michael Hayde in his book, he said that he became, uh, Webb became known around KGO as the man of a hundred voices all alike. I think that he did make, differentiate the voices fairly well most of the time. Based on what I heard, I think that Jack Webb probably could have been a very good audiobook reader today, but I don't think it was up to snuff for an all uh, full cast uh, drama with just one actor. The theme was also a bit weird. It seemed like it was made for another type of series. You know, it sounded like you were going to get something um, whimsical and entertaining, and then you get that really sort of... Uh, loud thunderclap. And truth be told, I think the biggest problem may be there just wasn't a market for the show in 1946. Now, some of that might be due to the opinion expressed, which may have limited its reach. While the show was definitely right to go after a Senator Theodore Bilbo, it'd be a mistake to assume that this was some sort of broadside that may have led to some complaints because this was a, a series that was not broadcast any further east than Utah. And with its perspective and the stories it told, it probably would not have gone national at any rate. For those who are interested in Jack Webb and his work, it really does give you some insight into his philosophy and things that uh, concerned him and that he and those who are in his circle were very passionate about uh, in the mid-1940s. And it reflects a mode of discontent and dissatisfaction with the state of the world, even at a time when most of the uh, Americans were basking in the glow of World War II victory. 
In many ways, that sort of clear-eyed approach would explain the projects that Webb would uh, so often produce, which, which dealt with uh, far more unpleasant aspects of life, uh, whether it was child abuse and neglect, the drug problem. These were not the type of things that Jack Webb would shy away from uh, later in life. And his interest and willingness to confront that in the projects that he worked on, uh, you can see the tone of that in one out of seven. Uh, I think there would be some uh, maturing of the attitude that goes into one out of seven. In many ways, it's a very uh, cynical approach. And you could see that in the Brotherhood Week uh, episode where uh, I think they correctly raised uh, points about all of these things that were going wrong in the country, but it was kind of put in juxtaposition against the uh, ceremonies and efforts of Brotherhood Week and their proclaimed successes. And I think the underlying message was that all of the stuff that they talked about uh, during Brotherhood Week uh, all of the uh, positive things that were done were in fact not true or not relevant or in some way hypocritical because there were other people in the country who were behaving contrary to the spirit of Brotherhood Week. And that sort of take that uh, the fact that there are people doing something that is horrible negates the efforts of people who are trying to better the world is just going to make you really cynical and bitter. You do see uh, a change in approach as Webb aged. And I, I go back to my favorite episode of Dragnet, which I think is the quintessential episode in terms of Dragnet's philosophy, uh, The Big Departure which if you've not seen it in a while, is about Friday and Gannon capturing a gang of boys who was were essentially because the world was horrible and there were problems in America, they were going to go and form their own nation on an island uh, where they were going to be peaceful and loving and uh, they were not going to do any of the horrible things that... Um, that uh, people uh, did in America, and this was going to be a peace-loving, uh, you know, uh, utopia that they would found using uh, material that they burgled from various stores. Uh, Friday not only points out the contradiction of what they were trying to do, but tells them that they need to not drop out, not leave, not get frustrated and take their ball and go home, but to really contribute to solving the problems that society faces. And this was the type of thing that, you know, Jack Webb could have, could say on his TV show as Joe Friday, uh, because, you know, 22 years before he'd been the guy on one out of seven talking about racial injustices 
And in that short span of time, so much progress had been made through changes in culture, you know, whether it was Jackie Robertson uh, breaking the color barrier, uh, changes in legislation, court rulings, and so much of the world had changed and so many of the injustices that he talked about had actually been addressed. And so I think there was definitely a bit of growing up from the thinly disguised uh, cynicism and anger of one out of seven to the sort of more mature and upbeat take that you get from something like The Big Departure. Now we turn to listener comments and feedback regarding uh, one of the recent Christmas episodes, which was from the radio series New World A-Coming. Joe uh, writes, I listened to this with great interest. I'd love to know the general feeling towards the program in its day. I'm sure even today that sort of forward thinking would be met with hatred. Did this program have a huge national audience or was it local? Looking back at history, even more at the modern world, I cannot grasp how skin color has separated so uh, people so greatly. It saddens my heart to think of how cruel uh, people can really be to one another. I'm blessed in my life to work with a variety of people from various countries across the world, primarily Asian and Middle Eastern. Uh, Some of the best conversations I've been have been about culture and religion. Just because we aren't the same doesn't mean we have to hate each other. Uh, This is more than I should unwrap here, but I know men uh, more like me, uh, color and religion, that are just awful humans. Adam, thank you for playing this. It's an interesting piece of history. Well, thank you so much uh, for your comments, Joe. I definitely appreciate it. Uh, regarding A New World of Common, it was a local uh, radio program uh, broadcast on an independent station in New York. And it, it was definitely uh, unique, uh, particularly among those that survived. There are very few uh, series of uh, radio programs that were led by uh black Americans that continue to circulate to this day. Uh, another series that does have uh, a lot of episodes circulating is Destination Freedom, uh, which was uh, recorded and syndicated in Chicago, but not very widely. Uh, in many ways, many of these programs, uh, they did have kind of a preaching to the choir sort of effect. They would be Uh, syndicated on stations where there was interest in playing them. So they were not something that was well known to the wider public. Well, thank you so much for your comment, Joe. And that will actually do it for today. Uh, Join us back here on Wednesday, where we'll uh, be done with some of the heavy uh, stuff and uh, be bringing you Uh, some of Jack Webb's uh, radio work in Hollywood, which would involve a whole lot of escape. I'll tell you all about it on Wednesday. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.